Today is Columbus Day in the United States and Thanksgiving in Canada. So today on the One Peter Five podcast, we're going to be giving thanks for colonialism. Jesus is King. Welcome to the One Peter Five podcast, rebuilding Christendom, restoring Catholic culture and tradition. I am Timothy Flanders, the editor-in-chief of One Peter Five, and I'm joined today by two of our contributing editors, Mr. Charles Colomb, author of many books, most recently, uh, Blessed Carl of Austria, one of our patrons here at One Peter Five, also Puritan's Empire, the, Ameri- the uh, Catholic perspective on American history. And we also have Kennedy Hall with us, also a contributing editor, host of the Kennedy Report, author of Terror of Demons, Reclaiming Traditional Catholic Masculinity. Gentlemen, happy Thanksgiving for Colonialism Day. <laughs> Thank That's you wonderful. very much. Yeah. We just Indeed. celebrated, when this airs, we will have just celebrated Truth and Reconciliation Day, which is about the uh, the lie of all the, uh, the Native stuff. So, But uh, I didn't celebrate that day this year. I'm just going to stick to Thanksgiving. Perfect. Well, the, the problem is that if you really tell the truth about anything, it's very unlikely there will be reconciliation. I know. Uh, we'll get to that. We'll for sure talk about that. <laughs> yes, truth is, is very an, a very offensive topic. So today, yeah, we'll we'll see how this does on YouTube. I don't, I don't know if uh, YouTube will have a problem with it. But before we get into our fun topic of Thanksgiving today, just want to remind everyone to please support One Peter Five. We've got bills to pay, and we appreciate your support. So first of all, also there's a link below in the description to. Some of the details of Columbus Day itself and its connection to the Feast of Our Lady of the Pillar. Because this Columbus Day, believe it or not, is is sort of a Marian feast day. uh, Because it has a connection with uh, prophecies about the uh, evangelization of the world by Spain. And we have uh, our wonder, another Canadian, uh, one of our authors here, talking about the Feast of Columbus Day. But... Now, there are those, unfortunately, believe it or not, who do not want to give thanks for colonialism. And they say, well, uh, before Columbus came and the Europeans arrived, there was, uh, you know, all these Indians who were living in harmony with each other and with the earth. And uh, it was really one big happy Indian powwow going on in the Americas. But then the Europeans came and they just killed and enslaved everybody. They were really bad guys. And uh, we should apologize for uh, all of their evil. So uh, why don't we start with the pre-Columbian Americas? What what was it like in reality uh, to live as an Indian in the Americas? Uh, Mr. Colum, can you tell us about what it was like? Well, mind you, despite my age, I wasn't actually there, despite what people will tell you. Uh, But I, being part Huron and Algonquin myself, I have a uh, a vested interest in those days. They were pretty horrible. (laughs) You know, life was brutish, desperate, and short. Uh, Because, first and foremost, and I, and I I hate to rain on anybody's parade, but the American Indians, um, I use that in the sense of North and South American, were human beings. And human beings, especially if they don't have the faith, have a very weird tendency being fallen. 
to be as nasty to one another as they can get away with without someone being nastier to them in return and ending the cycle for that moment. Um, the truth is that the Aztecs, as we know, had a very bloody and horrific religion. And the coming of the Spaniards was seen as liberation by their various subject tribes who were really tired of having their brightest and best sacrificed on those pyramids. But don't, don't let us forget that North America had seen the rise and fall of several several semi-advanced civilizations. Uh, I mean, just by that, I mean more or less to the level of the Aztecs, uh, which our ancestors called the Mound Builders and which current, uh, current uh, archaeology assigns different names to. Really, nobody knows what they were because we don't have written records. We do know that they fought a lot, and we do know they fought some really pitched battles. Uh, we know that when the when Cartier came to Canada in 1534, uh, the St. Lawrence Valley was inhabited by Iroquois speakers. But uh, less than a century later, when Champlain came, my ancestors had cleared them all out. And I can guarantee you this was not done by invitation or peacefully. Is that the way those things worked? And while we're on the subject of the Iroquois, of course, the Iroquois, who I have to say had a great many admirable traits, which is why so many French missionaries died trying to evangelize them. Uh, but they were really nasty. I mean, you did not want to be captured by the Mohawks. They would make you run the gauntlet. And if you survived, they would, um, well, they would adopt you, which was something, I guess. In the case, for instance, of Saint Jean Babeuf, they were so knowledgeable about Catholicism that they cut off the ends of his canonical fingers precisely so that he would not be able to say mass. There's a kind of intense, not to say satanic, cruelty to that. And that is true of any pagan religion. It was true of our ancestors in Europe before the faith came to them. Think of ancient Rome. Paganism is always nasty. But wait, there's more. Let me touch for a minute on the environmentalism, shall I? Remember that they were living in peace and harmony with nature. Only if they had to. To give you a good example, until the Spanish came, there were no horses in North America. So you might very well be asking, what about the teepees and the plains tribes chasing the buffalo in freedom and, and harmony and stuff? Well, the sad truth was, without horses, they couldn't do that. The arrival of the horse, uh, in terms of ecology, provoked a wonderful revolution in favor of the environment. I know that sounds strange because their carbon in imprint expanded. But the reason for this is that prior to the coming of the horse, the Plains tribes lived along the riverbanks, the only place you could get water, in these little earth lodges. But to get buffalo, they couldn't chase them. I mean, not and catch them. So what they did was they would stampede them over cliffs, whole herds. And having done that, they took away only what they could carry, which wasn't a lot. So, in other words, what I'm telling you is the buffalo herds really, really profited by the arrival of the horse brought by the Spanish. Now, they, these are important things to bear in mind because... People, especially academics today, because they don't know a lot, and why should they? They're only running academia. 
they have this romantic vision of the noble savage, which goes back to Rousseau and Voltaire. It's a, it's a, a haunting image in Western civilization. But it's just not true. Uh, but it's, it's gotten so ridiculous now that academics will come up with things like decolonizing Jane Austen and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I will, I will conclude my oration by saying that if you really want to decolonize, here's what you got to do. Yeah, for this. You start with yourself. Yeah. Only speak indigenous languages. No language of European derivation. Do not use European technology like, oh, I don't know, the computer. Don't wear European clothing. Don't eat European food. Stay away from European medicine. In other words, sit in the mud and eat grubs. Unless you do that, some will suspect you of hypocrisy. Not me, of course. I'm from California and I don't judge. But you yourself will never be decolonized personally until you do just those things. There you have it. How to decolonize yourself. Uh, yes, the, the long and short of it is that the Indians fought and enslaved each other for centuries before the Europeans arrived. Uh, some Europe, as you said, some Indians welcomed the Europeans because they wanted protection from the other Indians. Um, and Or they wanted some of their technology. They wanted to trade. They wanted to form a relationship with the Europeans. They recognized they had superior technology or superior this or that. Um, Kennedy, do you have any comments about uh, the Canadian region, pre-Columbian? What are your thoughts? Sure. So uh, it's interesting you mentioned the mound builders. Nobody ever mentions the mound builders. Um, in the oldest records that we have, the mound builders were before the current indigenous tribes. So mm -hmm. I believe the indigenous tribes owe the mound builders reparations um, because they stole their they stole their land. You know, and this this brings me, and I'm I'm being facetious here, of course, but this brings me to um, what the, the crux of how absurd this narrative is about indigenous peoples. And forgive me, and when I grew up, it was Indian, then it was Native, then it was Aboriginal, then it was First Nations. No, yeah, and that was Indigenous. I actually came to calling them First Nations because that was what I had to write all the time in the university. Anyway, so the First Nations people. Um, which is also kind of a silly term because a nation requires borders and, and things like that. So that would beg a whole other thing. But in any case, the First Nations, um, they were many nations. They were many different people. Uh, the Algonquin were quite amenable to the Europeans. The Algonquins were sort of like the, if you, if you read about, and I think Cortez was a great hero, actually. Um, and when you read about his escapades in New, in, uh, New Spain, um, he talks about the differences in the, trajectory of their diabolism. Uh, the Aztecs were extremely diabolical. They had a very, they were like, the, almost like that. You might compare them to the, the Carthaginians and against Rome sort of thing. They had a, they had a, a paganism that was very severe and very efficient, um, which was, it was very bloodthirsty. Whereas the, the tribes outside had more of a, like Chesterton would say, the sort of uh, warm paganism of the woods, you know, that you find in the Italian countryside. Of course, they worshipped idols, and that's not good, but but they were sort of more concerned, uh, relatively speaking, with sort of the fanciful folktales and things. And and Canada had a, had a difference like that as well. The Algonquins were very gentle people, uh, generally speaking, which is why they were much more amenable to 
uh, contact and things. And also, when the French showed up, um, there was a very moribund existence. Uh, they did not have good agricultural methods. And that's one of the reasons why uh, the weaker tribes who couldn't sort of dominate hunting lands and things like that, they were actually so happy to make friends with the French because they could bring them these farming methods where they could sustain themselves much better. They didn't have written language. So as Charles said, if you wanted to decolonize, you'd have to use an indigenous language. But you can't use an, a, a Latin alphabet for it, uh, which means you can't write it. Because <laughs> anyway, they don't have a, anyway. Uh, so, you know, there was a, it was a massively diverse situation, just the way Europe is. You know, I mean, Irish paganism was brutal, but it was brutal in different to Roman paganism. You know, I mean, the Druids were another degree of nasty, even to the Romans. And, and the things like that existed in, in Canada. So, but the biggest problem I find with the crux of this narrative is, and Charles pointed to the idea of Rousseau and the noble savage and so forth. This whole conversation, when you're talking about it from a sort of mainstream leftist perspective, starts with a really strong hypocrisy um, or contradiction. And this is in the, in the idea of property. Okay. And we were recently up uh, in the bush uh, on a lake um, for a vacation as a family. And we were coming back, and we were coming back through a town called Bracebridge, which is Muskoka, which is where you find the $5 million cottages with all the Torontonians and things. It's a gorgeous place. All these stickers were around in the town because there's still people who are attached to this, you know, lie that Trudeau said about the mass graves and things, which we'll, we'll talk about later, maybe. Um, so all these stickers were around on these, you know, graffiti on poles and things like that. And it was called hashtag land back. Give us our land back. And it said, there's no pride. No, don't take pride. No pride in genocide. You know, of course, you know, anyway. But um, I was thinking about this notion of land back. Canada has 42 million people, roughly, and um, about 90% of this place doesn't even have any civilization on it. You know, I was just up in the bush at a cottage uh, on the lake, and we, and this was in an area that was relatively populated, and we drove about 25 kilometers from the highway through the woods in order to get to a place and nobody was around. And we were, you know, um, and this is two hours from Ottawa. This isn't like in Nunavut or the Northwest Territories. This is near like a massive, metro, you know, metropolitan city with a million people. And... When the settlers arrived, um, there were estimates of 100 to 500,000 people. To put that in perspective, Canada, my province alone is three times the size of Texas. And Ontario, there's parts of it that are cold, but the whole province is, is habitable. Um, and uh, you could drive for, you could, you could walk for three months on foot in a direction in this province, and you would not find a single person um, if you wanted to. Um, you could drive 27 hours and you're still in the same province if you stay within the Canadian border. Um, so, I mean, just think about the massive size of the country of Canada. It's bigger than the United States, a little bit smaller than Russia. And there were 150, 200, maybe 300,000. Let's just say it was 500,000 people. That's from Newfoundland all the way to the tip of Alaska. There is no one here. There was absolutely nobody here. This idea that it was the land was stolen. This is insane. Uh, uh, this And also, if we believe that this narrative of the land was stolen, then we'd have to assume that the natives themselves had some sort of weird understanding of property rights, which no one in history ever had. Uh, historically, if someone has an understanding of property rights, it's like, well, you have a deed to the land, or you have a government that oversees it, or at least some sort of tribe that has uh, nomadic and has sort of their area around patrolled or something like that. There are parts of Canada today that probably no human beings ever st stepped foot in. 
Um, so this whole thing, it, it requires a, a suspension of logical reasoning in order to believe it. Because on the one hand, you have to believe that the natives, uh, you know, they were so in love with the idea of having property that they owned the whole bloody thing. However, that, even though they weren't unified, even though parts they'd never been to didn't know existed and the Europeans made maps of them. But at the same time, they didn't have the same conception of property rights, which is why it was unfair what the Europeans did. This, it's a very contradictory uh, thing. And last thing before I'll finish my rant here is um, there's a reason why um, Europeans did so well here and natives historically and Canada specifically because of the climate did not. They did not have the technology to make the land useful to themselves. This is why New York was sold for like 50 bucks or whatever, because New York was a very, um, uh, it was not a useful piece of land unless you had European, specifically kind of the uh, Dutch, uh, Belgian area, uh, irrigation techniques where you could turn that into something that you could use. It was, if I go look at a field that's, you know, a thousand acres and it's full of marsh and things like that, that's useless to me. I can't do anything with it. But somebody with farming techniques that knows how to do that because they come from a similar land over in Europe, that's very useful to them. Okay, and this is what was ha this is what happened in Europe is people with the technology to actually cultivate this place came over and they did so. Otherwise, it never would have happened. I mean, all things being equal. And uh, and just last thing, you know, uh, even even give, even if we go with the, the bad stereotypes of the European colonizer, Canada was the most tame of all of these places. First of all, there was almost nobody here and there was massive collaboration between the natives and the French for the most part, even the English. Uh, so much so that they even fought with the English and the French in their various wars, um, willingly. So, you know, the whole narrative about Canadian uh, colonization and so forth is is completely backwards. And it's actually quite a, a, in my opinion, when you read it properly, it's actually quite a bright spot in the history of my country. And it should be celebrated. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and Mr. Colomb, that, that brings up the, uh, the, the staking out of New France because there was a claim made on the land. Some of the land did have Indians in the, in this new France area. Um, can you speak to more on how can the king, can, how can the crown of France claim the land and what are some of the achievements of new France? All right. Well, first and foremost, uh, I, I really, I really have to, uh, after applauding Mr. Hall's wonderful, uh, wonderful narration, I, uh, I would add that unlike the English colonies, France, as with Spain and Portugal, um, always had a hard time getting settlers anyway. That was the first thing. The problem is that France, Spain, and Portugal in that era were very nice places to live. And then, I, I'm not being funny. I mean, it's difficult to get people to leave an area they're, they're happy in. It's just very, very difficult. So, from the beginning, the uh, the French crown could not deal with New France, even if they'd wanted to, which is very doubtful. They couldn't deal with it the way that the English colonies dealt with their Indians. They, 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 it couldn't be done. And they didn't want to, because primarily, New France was seen, unlike the West Indian colonies, as uh, a place for fur trading. They were not going to get a lot of agricultural wealth. They weren't going to get gold. They weren't going to get silver. They found that out very quickly. So what do you have to make the place profitable? Furs. That's what you have. But 
the vast majority of settlers were not going to be, uh, there were no mink farms, you know, no beaver farms. You had to go out and get them. And the vast majority of French settlers were not going to be doing that either. Agriculture in New France, when they were able to get people over there, was not very rewarding. It was subsistence farming primarily. Now, the uh, it was it was so difficult to get settlers to come to Quebec that the uh, the king hit on a uh, on a wonderful twofold scheme. The first was sending over a regiment of soldiers, the Carignan-Salière, and offering them if when they were demobilized ten years later, if they stayed in Quebec, they could have property. But see, this property, as Kennedy pointed out. The Indians were not using it. They did not sit along the river farming. That was not their thing. Uh, they, they, what they did do, the French gathered them into missionary, uh, into missions, some of which survive today. Uh, Saint-Francois, uh, Conawaga, a number of others like these. Um, because the French allied with the Algonquin, and because some of the Iroquois, and uh, with the Huron, and some of the Iroquois allied first with the Dutch and then with the uh, with the English, the Iroquois wiped out the Hurons. They smashed them. They destroyed them. The story of the Iroquois-Huron War, which happened directly as a result of French and, and English rivalry, is something that has to be said over and over again. The Hurons were, for the most part, driven out of their former territory in western Quebec, eastern Ontario, and ended up uh, either right by Quebec seeking refuge or in the Andernan Peninsula there in, in Ontario where they could defend themselves, or they, or they fled as far away as Wisconsin. If you've heard of the Wyandots, which is an American tribe, those are Huron descendants. And now you'll find them in Kansas and Oklahoma where the uh, U.S. government uh, moved them. But that's all of the story. Point is that from the beginning, New France was dependent on its Indian allies, militarily and economically. And that, uh, that created a very, very different mentality. Now, the other problem they had was the fact that it was difficult. It was hard to get men to come to Quebec. It was harder to get women. So what do you do? Well, it so happened that there was a, a sort of a, a network of royal orphanages all around France. Uh, and these, well, they were, they were convents, royal convents. But they would take in, uh, they would take in foundlings, orphan girls, train them in the, uh, the various, various means of civilized life. And they would then, when they when they um, left the convent, legally they would be daughters of the king, and they would leave with a uh, dowries and b the right to choose their own husband. So the king had a bright idea. I know, we'll send these ladies to the new world, and he did to Quebec, to New Orleans, to Mobile, and to this day, virtually all of the French Canadians. And a lot of the Creole families in Louisiana and Alabama and Mississippi descend from these demoiselles uh, du cachet, these uh, casket girls, as they say. They'll 
that was great if you could get one to marry you. But what if you couldn't? Well, from that emerged the people we call Métis. And in a lot of ways, they were the, the Métis, the mixed French and Indians, with a backbone of the French Empire in America. Not, of course, in Quebec, not down in Louisiana, but throughout the Mississippi and St. Lawrence, the Great Lakes, and further west. Um, and they were personal mediaries between their, their, their French paternal ancestry and their Indian maternal ancestry. So the French, uh, the biggest thing that the French did in terms of altering the Indian way of life was bringing them the Catholic faith. And it's interesting that they were so successful at this that as late as the early 19th century, when the Belgian missionary Father Desmet set up camp in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, a group of flathead Indians all the way from Montana, having heard about the Catholic faith, came to Father Desmet and asked him to send black robes to yeah. teach them the way of God. So, and really, uh, the, the, the fall of New France, unfortunately, was predicated on the loss of our Indian allies. And that came about in a very strange way. If you've seen uh, the uh, last of the Mohicans, you'll have heard about the, uh, the siege of Fort William Henry in uh, the French Indian War. Well, the governor, the French governor at the time, Moncon, the Marquis de Moncon, was present for the victory. He, he won the battle with the, the French and the Indian allies. He had promised the English prisoners in return for their surrender that they would not be molested in any way. Unfortunately, a lot of the Indian allies uh, didn't feel themselves bound by that. And so from time to time, they would attack and scalp and, and otherwise upset and annoy and kill some of the English prisoners as they were marching in a group. Well, Montcalm was horrified by this, utterly horrified. And he sent out a directive that from now on, the Indian allies were not to scalp. They were not to torture. They were not to do this, not to do that. And so they said, fine, do it yourself then. Bye-bye. And with that, the, there was simply too few French to hold off the British onslaught. And that led directly to the Plains of Abraham and the fall of New France. Yeah. No good deed goes unpunished, as we say. Yes. Um, so what we're seeing is there's a mixture as, as we always know that the um, excuse me, the Marxist narrative is always a sort of black and white, good guys and bad guys. Bad guys are always the Catholics. Um, yeah. And uh, the reality is that there is sort of good guys and bad guys on all sides. Oh. Um, but we do notice that the many of the Indians welcomed the French. They married the French, making a new race of peoples. Uh, I was reading the story of Per Marquette and how he was uh, over in the Wisconsin area. Then he came down to explore the Mississippi and he was welcomed by the Illinois tribe who loved him. And uh, he was able to make peace with other tribes. And they, one of them, one of their uh, pluses was trying to get protection from the Iroquois from the French. They yeah. wanted to ally with the French so the French would protect them from other Indians and uh, so there's all, so many different tribes battling each other. Um, 
but as as you had noted as well the um the French also helped to develop the actual Indian civilization itself. There are dictionaries and uh, lexicons and, and books used to this day by Indian tribes that were created by French Catholic missionaries. And this is something that's very different than the English, uh, who did not really successfully create a mixed-race Anglo-Indian civilization it, no. you know there were protestant missionaries and there were individual cases but there was not as much of a significant creation as there were in in french, uh, well, french. the reason for that is that their efforts were not part of government policy but one of the interesting uh, interesting things in canado american history and I, I use that advisedly because you know the two countries well actually four came out of the american revolution not just the United States, but also Anglo-Canada. Um, what happened was that when we were conquered by the English, I say we advisedly, uh, the king, uh, George III, in his treaty with the French, made a, uh, it required him to treat his new French and uh, Indian subjects as though they were his own born. Now this brought the crown a huge problem. Because remember, prior to this time, they had supported the uh, English colonists in doing whatever they wanted to do against the French and the Allied Indians. Well, now all of a sudden, right. everything turns around. And so in 1763, the king issues a proclamation restricting colonial settlement to the east of the Alleghenies, safeguarding the Indian uh, the Indian territories. Well, this did not sit well with the colonists, who had partly, well, with the wealthy colonists, to be honest, who had partly supported the war against the French because they had visions of taking over the Trans-Allegheny land and making money out of spe land speculation. All of a sudden, the top men in each colony, you know, saw their dreams smashed. Yeah. If that weren't bad enough, at that time, as you know, Catholicism was, for all practical purposes, illegal in Britain and the colonies outside of Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Delaware. Well, what was that thing about treating his subjects, his new French subjects, as though they were his own born? The ultimate child of that was the Quebec Act, yeah. which is denounced the Declaration of Independence. So what... What you have here, then, is that all of a sudden, the Crown's policy, the Crown, takes over French Indian policy. And that was, as well as its attitude toward the, the, the people of Quebec, which contributed in no small amount to starting the revolution in the southern colonies. Yeah, so the... the toleration of Catholicism, not only Catholicism, but Christendom in Quebec, the toleration of Christendom in Quebec is denounced by the Declaration of Independence, which says something like uh, he, the, the King of England has allowed an arbitrary government to be in a neighboring province. And, and uh, suspended the free system of English laws, which were the penal laws. And that, I mean, it's, it's as Orwellian a document as you like in that particular section. Yes, it but is. But then, just to show you how history is and how it takes no prisoners, it doesn't let anybody get smug, they're losing the war. 
the rebels. So who do they turn to? France and Spain. And of course, as soon as France and Spain enter the war, they may eventually make it impossible for the British to win. But beyond that, it basically forces the Continental Congress to allow the tolerance of Catholicism. And sure enough, the first Catholic church built after the war, New York City, 1785, is financed by the King of Spain. Wow, wonderful. So uh, let's uh, get back to Canada. Uh, Kennedy, I wanted to ask you about the boarding schools controversy. Um, I read in the Catholic Encyclopedia, there's a, there's a, the old Catholic Encyclopedia has an article on the Canadian missions, and it, it, it estimates that by about 1900, uh, about half of all the Indians in Canada were Catholic. Yes. Um, so the Anglo and French co cooperation or coexistence in Canada was largely a success because the, the French were still able to uh, evangelize the Indians. Um, and But there is this, the boarding school controversy, which arose, uh, was it a couple years ago now that Trudeau made his comments? There were a dozen. 2021. In 2021. Okay, 2021. Mm -hmm. um, there were graves found. Um, you all know the story. We're not going to rehash the story. But uh, Kennedy, can you give us some points of truth to this narrative? Sure, just so people two second elevator pitch on what happened with Trudeau, because it is important. There are a few times in history where you can say something's actually a hoax. You know, this was actually a hoax. There were no mass graves. Uh, there were community cemeteries. It's a whole thing. I've written extensively about it at LifeSite News. Um, I'm currently reviewing a, um, uh, what's, what's it called? A uh, documentary by Rebel Media, which is sort of the only us and LifeSite News and uh, them and one of their plate people were kind of the only independent, uh, real conservative journalists in the country. And, and it, it's a really, it's a, an amazing thing so far. So stay tuned for that uh, to really know the truth. But I've written a lot. If you look up residential schools, LifeSite News, you'll undoubtedly find two or three articles that I've written. Yeah, we'll, have, uh, we'll have that all linked below. Okay. Okay. So, huh. It's well, one of the reasons I love talking with Charles about history is because he always um, shows that it's much more complicated than your little textbooks might have you believe. And um, it, is the, it is the case with the interaction between Catholicism and America um, that it's just more complicated than you think. And it's also the case uh, with the uh, influence of Catholicism and natives in Canada. It's just much more nuanced than anyone would have you believe. So you mentioned how half of the uh, Half of the natives were rough, roughly half were Catholic. Do you know what the the rest? Almost all the rest were also Protestant. There was very little paganism left in uh, in Canadian natives. Most of the uh, uh, Protestant natives would have been the Church of England uh, or Presbyterian or something like that. One of the official sort of uh, British Isles religions that came over. Um, so the system of residential schools is what's that question? That is a different thing than the traditional system of Catholic boarding schools. So the, the, the missionaries in Canada did what missionaries have done all over the world. They just set up schools and the schools were free for the kids who couldn't afford them. They taught them the faith, of course, helped them to save their souls and many, many wonderful things. Um, and uh, of course, over 150 years of schools, I'm sure someone did something bad to somebody at some point and it's just life. Um, 
But uh, largely, the uh, Oblates of Mary Immaculate were absolute heroes uh, in Canada. And in fact, Father Grandin, Bishop Grandin, uh, people don't know who he was. If you look at the Alberta coat of arms today, you'll see a little, a little pair of snowshoes on there. And those snowshoes are not just general snowshoes, you know, because Canadians, we just all have snowshoes, apparently. But they're not just general snowshoes. They actually represent the snowshoes of Bishop Grandin for the hundreds of thousands of kilometers that he walked on foot setting up the province. Um, this country was built by Catholicism. It's not just crypto-Catholic. It's actually historically Catholic. Um, in any case, um, so the resident, the boarding schools were just schools, and they were everywhere, run by nuns, run by priests, Christian brothers, so on and so forth. Okay. Eventually, the Anglo-Canadian uh, Anglo government, um, after the founding of Canada in 1867, the Dominion, which our first prime minister was a Scottish Freemason, so, you know, that's just kind of how these things tend to go. But, um, and in fairness to him, I would say he was a, of the old Whig Freemasonry, which was a little, much less uh, Manichaean than the, than the following. But in any case, um, they set up a, a system of, of, of uh, assimilation eventually in the late 1800s in the way that you would expect a very Malthusian, um, Francis Galton-inspired British upper crust tended to do at that time. So, you know, realistically speaking, the motives uh, were mixed uh, on, the, on behalf of the government. Now, that being said, the government itself did not really explain what had to be taught to the students. So, um, in, re in, in reality, it was just an expansion of funding by the government that went towards church-run schools, whether they be Catholic or whether they be Protestant. Again, there was a mix. Many of them were Church of England. Um, and uh, contrary to what the narrative says, it was not mandatory to send your kids there. It was mandatory that your kids be educated. How dare they? Um, but you did not have to send your kids to a boarding school. If you wanted to, you could send them to a school that was nearby, if you had one. The thing is, many of the native tribes, of course, did not live in cities and so forth. They did not have any schools nearby. Uh, they didn't, you know, so in order to send their kids to school, they would have to do, you know, a 15-hour journey down the lake and, and on, the, you know, the snow, the snow uh, sleds and things like that and send them to a place that was far from their home because there was nothing. Um, Many of the natives loved these Catholic schools so much uh, that, in fact, you can find a story from the 1920s from uh, near Winnipeg, in Manitoba, where the school that was run by the Mar uh, Marian sisters, the Immaculate, uh, Oblates of Mary Immaculate, the school burnt down. And the government said, OK, now you got to send your kids to the day school, which is actually close enough to you. And they said, no, we won't send them to school until you build us another school. And they petitioned the government and basically rioted and not rioted, but sort of protested that they build them another Catholic school. So the government of Canada actually paid to have another Catholic school built for the Oblates of Mary Immaculate because they wouldn't send their kids to be educated by anybody other than those nuns. Um, it was an extremely positive experience for many. Part of the narrative um, that gets thrown around is they assimilated them by making them cut their hair and not speak their language and things. Well, I'll let you know a little secret. In Canada, you can't go to university if you don't speak English and French. So... If you wanted to have your native children become lawyers and statesmen, and so forth, which many did when they came through these schools because they received a world-class education, they had to speak English and French. In addition, these native tribes all spoke different dialects of different languages. So when they would come to school, the only way they could get them to actually communicate with one another 
was to speak a lingua franca via a vehicular language that they could all understand, which would have been English or French, because everyone in Canada has to speak English or French. If you come from uh, if you come from Mexico, Spanish is, is, is widely spoken here, but it's not an official language. You can't get a degree in it to go work in public policy. It's just not how it works. We're all oppressed in that sense. My mom had to learn English and she couldn't speak Italian and go to public school. She probably deserves reparations as well. In any case, um, they also made them cut their hair. Why is that? Everyone who goes to boarding school cuts their hair. You know why? Because children, when they play around with other children, tend to get this nasty thing called lice if they have really long hair. So they cut their hair. Now, um, fast, you know, fast forward that in these years at these boarding schools, they also lived through all of the things that everybody else lived through epidemics, Spanish flu, tuberculosis, and so forth. Now, the health in many of these native communities was so poor that often they would go to the school already having tuberculosis. Now, why is that? Because the nuns also operated community hospitals because they were so, they hated natives so much they actually wanted to care for them while they were sick. So um, these schools had much higher rates of certain diseases. Sadly, this was what was reflected in the native population as a whole. They had much higher rates of certain diseases. So if you were going to take in a population of natives and care for them, you would have a much higher rate of certain diseases. And this was a result of the way that they lived. So they did their best to help them. But this has turned into, look, you know, it's just like the smallpox blanket myth. You know, they put them in these schools, so they would all die of the flu and so on and so forth. Okay, so this system of residential schools as a sort of pseudo-mandatory boarding school program ended around the time of World War II as far as that program uh, in the way that it was manifested. However, certain schools that were run by the government did exist, and I think the last one closed in 1996. So the, the, the narrative in Canada has been the government of Canada forced natives to go to schools where they took their language away, cut their hair, and gave them tuberculosis all the way until the 1990s. This is how stupid these people are when they talk about it. Um, Nothing of the sort happened. Um, I've been working with a an, 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 uh, group called the uh, Frontier Institute, for Frontier Policy Institute, I can't remember. They're basically a, a very conservative think tank out of Western Canada. Um, in 2014, 2015, there was this document released called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission document, about 4,000 pages. No one's read it. No one in government's ever read it, except for this institute. Um, and it is, it is one of the most egregiously... Uh, uh, poorly put together uh, documents in the history of my country. It has evidence, meaning it just has testimonies. None of them verified. Uh, and many of, and they'll and say things like, there are, are, are 100,000 references to abuse in uh, these schools. No. There are tens of thousands of repetitions of claims by the same people about the same thing, all recorded about unverified cases of abuse that happened while they were students, not necessarily from the teachers. So, for example, many of the cases will be, I experienced abuse at this residential school, meaning I was bullied by a former, by a fellow student at the residential school. And that is in there seven or eight times by the same person, because literally every single uh, testimony was just put in this document. This fellow that I talked to who has read the thing front and back, everyone at this policy institute, they said, we're the only ones in the, in the country who've actually read this thing more than once, which is why they try to advise government as much as possible for good policy. And... Uh, they said if this was handed in in first year university, it wouldn't pass because it, there's no citations. There's no, it's not a real evidentiary document. In any case, uh, coming up to uh, last couple years, uh, there were some graves that were found. Actually, some of them were actually just tree roots and aberrations in the soil from ground penetrating radar. But, you know, 
ground penetrating radar, finding tree roots in, in the soil, basically Auschwitz. So um, there Shouldn't was this... the tree roots get reparations? Well, I don't know. They kind of, they, they colonize the soil. So I, I'm not really sure. They should probably give the soil some reparations. Um, but, uh, you know, it, 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 Trudeau used this as a Marxist does and, and, and turned it into this whole, like, look, we need Black Lives Matter North kind of thing. And it resulted in about 20 churches, most of them Catholic, being burned to the ground. Um, and that was all based on the lie that the residential school system was this evil colonial enterprise and so on and so forth. When really, if you actually look at the testimony, if you actually read this document, uh, it's, a it's, it's remarkable how many positive testimonies there were. I love the nuns. This was the greatest thing that ever happened. I mean, we've, we've got Canadian natives who became superior court justices and things like that. They could never have done that if they didn't go have a world-class education uh, that was even in many places better than what happened in the city. So that's sort of the Coles notes of the system. Mr. Cologne, any further comments on that? Well, yeah. Uh, you know, anything that comes out of Trudeau's mouth is a lie by virtue of coming out of his mouth. Although you should have yeah. seen him uh, what the night before last in London. He was just Singing. boogieing the blues yeah. away, karaoke. You know, I, I got to tell you, Canada is my ancestral homeland. And it's produced some pretty good figures. But man, my dad used to say about the French Canadians, and little Justine is perhaps a quarter French Canadian. Uh, he used to say, when we're good, we're excellent. When we're bad, we are horrible. And Justine is a, uh, a very good example of this. Beyond that, I can say that there is a happy element to the story, which I'll relate to you. Uh, the Mohawks, as you know, were steady British allies all during the wars with my ancestors, uh, despite Kateri Tekakwitha, the, the lily of the Mohawks. Um, but after the uh, French-Indian War, when George III had his Indian policy, they retained their alliance with the Crown and were no longer fighting the other Indians. The revolution breaks out. They fight for the king. Now, a lot of them had become Anglican. And so in what's now Fort Hunter, New York, was built by Queen Anne, the Chapel Royal of the Mohawks, which was the only Chapel Royal outside Britain. When the uh, British were defeated, like, the, uh, like many of the white loyalists, the Indian loyalists, a lot of them had to leave as well. And that included the Mohawks, who went into two directions, uh, Brantford, Ontario, and Tandanaga. Uh, and they sort of divided the communion silver from Queen Anne and set up two chapels royal of the Mohawks. The one in Tandanaga today they're both still there. They're both still chapels royal. But the one in Tayandanaga, the congregation have become Catholic under the ordinaria. And they are the Church of Christ the King, meeting in Her Majesty's, I guess we have to say His Majesty's, Chapel Royal of the Mohawks. And to me, that is a wonderful reconciliation of all the different threads of Canadian history. Wow, that's beautiful. I didn't I didn't know about that gem of the ordinariate. That's in Tandanaga. Where exactly is that? So the Bay of Quint. Does that help? Bay of Quint. 
I, I, I regret to inform you that my uh, American it's, it's, education it's did not inform me of my Canadian. It's, it's in southern Ontario. Don't worry about it. It's in the populated part. One of the uh, one of the uh, I, I have the uh, the pleasure of knowing slightly Chief Maracle, who is the chief of that band, uh, convert uh, along with most of his uh, most of his fellow uh, tribesmen. And you know, if you look, if you take the the larger view, you compare the history of the Canadian West to the American West. You see the difference. Uh, with us in the United States, three quarters of the Catholic missions were taken away by President Grant's administration and given to Protestants. In um, in Canada, the OMIs were protected by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police who also protected the Indians and the settlers and the settlers and the Indians. There's a much, much more um, civilized way, shall we say, to settle such a vast, empty uh, territory. And it brings me to mind of, of Black Elk, who was uh, a Sioux. There are to this day in Canada uh, several bands of Sioux who fled to Canada to escape the American army in the 1870s. Black Elk was one of those who stayed, and of course he's famous as a revealer of Native American spirituality in the book Black Elk Speaks. Well, unfortunately for the authors and fans of that book, he was still alive when it came out, and he was a catechist. He was a very devout Catholic by that time, and was mortified that they had used this book as a textbook to Indian paganism. So he wrote a piece. He's now incidentally up for canonization as a servant of God. But he um, he wrote a piece that was published as Black Elk, Spelks Again, Black Elk Speaks Again. And it's a very interesting account of his life and his conversion of the faith. But he talks about going to London with uh, the Wild West show. And as he put it, we danced before our grandmother, Queen Victoria. And he said, I wonder to this day what would have happened if she had stayed our grandmother. Wow. Interesting. That, that's why, you know, today with all the stuff going on in London about the coronation, the accession and all that, people ask you, well, you're French Canadian. Why would you care? Two words, Quebec act. <laughs> you know, maybe uh, you mentioned the grandmother. Maybe that's uh, when that native uh, shaman was doing the smudging with pope francis maybe that's what he meant by western grandmother really he was a uh, uh, a loyalist maybe that's exactly what he was talking about you, you, yeah that that was it yes the western grandmother west western grandmother there, there you western have it grandmother. We'll... <laughs> our grandmother queen victoria you know in, in fairness though um i think what that guy was referring to was actually saint anne um there's a, but it's it's still syncretism. It's it's Santeria basically. It's wrong to sort of mix the two, uh, but I think that's actually what he was referring to because there's a, an alleged apparition of Saint Anne in, in uh, the West, in, in, yes. in La, at Lake Saint Anne. Anyway, she's very uh, she was very popular in Quebec, and that popularity was carried by the Métis to the native tribes. Yeah. Uh, I'll just say since I'm sitting here in uh, Austria, that the reason why Saint Anne was so popular amongst the French Canadians was that Louis XIII's queen. And Dautriche, Anne of Austria, a Habsburg princess, was very devoted to St. Anne and actually provided the first financial support for the great shrine of St. Anne de Beaupre. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned, Charles, that um, for virtually all, uh, well, many French Canadian 
diaspora such as yourself are, are technically uh, offspring of daughters of the king. So that pretty much means that French Canadians are royalty, doesn't it? In, in, in speaking in law, yes. Very and good. Very good. One thing, one thing that is true about us, you know, in in America, we we have these hereditary societies and so on because we have no social classes. We're very egalitarian. Everyone's free, so we have <laughs> careful rigidity. So yes. you know your place. Well, a number of these hereditary organizations are the daughters of colonial dames. Yeah. And, you know, the, you've got to be able to prove your ancestry from pre-revolutionary times. Well, my father used to say, the difference between ourselves and the Anglo-American is that all of our women are colonial dames. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it is true. You get into an argument about politics in Quebec, and sooner or later, people start trumping it. Well, my first ancestor came in 1643. Hmm. And when you hear this from a Marxist, you know, the, the brain explodes. Why are you telling me this? Yeah. I know I, I'm saying it, but you've got no business saying it. That's not an argument. No. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thanksgiving for colonialism. I can certainly say that uh, I'm thankful that the Roman Empire expanded north and the gospel was sent to my people of northern Europe because we were vicious pagans before the gospel came to us. And as a Michigander, I give thanks for the colonialism of the French, especially, uh, but also the Anglos. And uh, thankful for the, the, the gospel coming to our region and this place. So let's offer up an Ave Maria. Kennedy, can you be my wingman on this Ave? Sure. And one last thing, though. Um, Go ahead. We, we didn't talk about... One of the most important things to ever come out of the French settlers of North America, Les Montreal Canadiens, the best <laughs> hockey team in the world who spread uh, the gospel of uh, battle on ice to the whole world. So I'm very thankful for that. We, 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 didn't, even, we didn't even mention Saint Jean Baptiste or that flag that's over my head right now. But that's this right. is a whole other issue. That's right. <laughs> Stay tuned for part two coming <laughs> soon. So we'll, we'll invoke our patrons at uh, 1 Peter 5 as well. We'll pray in Ave. In nomine Patris, et Fili, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Santa Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in mortis nostre. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima. Pray for us. For us. Blessed Emperor Carl. Pray for us. Saint Maximilian Colby. Pray for us. Pray for us. No many patris, et fili, et spiritus sancti. 